Take your Bible now and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. And this morning we're going to look at what probably is a familiar parable to most of you. But it's always worth reconsidering. You may know all that you need to know from this passage, but probably it would be a good refresher course for all of us. And as I read the passage, I'm going to make some comments along the way before I get to the sermon proper here. So, beginning with verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25, this is a parable regarding the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, of course, is the one who is doing the teaching. It's near the end of his life, probably the last week of his life on earth before he's crucified and raised from the dead and then seven weeks later returned to heaven. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Let me pause just a moment. Jesus has been on a mission. His mission is almost complete. His mission was a recruiting mission. He was calling men and women to service. And no ordinary service. Service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was calling them to imitate Him, as it were. To follow His example. He says this in John chapter 13. I've given you an example that you should follow. And he says in Mark 10:45 about himself, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself, uh, his life, as a ransom for many. So Jesus came here on a rescue mission to recruit followers. The Scripture calls such people disciples. And we're not to confuse the word disciple with apostle. Jesus did have a select group of disciples, twelve to be sure, and they were apostles. One of them was a bad egg, we know that. Judas, Jesus knew he was going to be a betrayer from the beginning. It was no mystery or surprise to Jesus about that. But he's now talking about going on a journey. He is represented by this man in the parable who owns an impressive estate. And how this man is preparing to go on a journey. And as he gets ready to leave, he leaves his possession in the, in the hands of some of his servants or slaves. And when he's coming back, Jesus is not going to be on a recruiting mission. Jesus, when he returns, is going to be on an accounting mission. It will be a time of evaluating the lives of all mankind, including us, who are His disciples, people who follow Him. So we need to pay careful attention to the basis of this kind of evaluation that is explained in this parable, at least. It needs to be coupled with the next one as well. Verse 15 says, And to one He gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to His own ability, and went on His journey. Now, the word talent does not mean a gift like we think of someone who is gifted and talented. I've talked to some students this past week who
who were at grade school and some in middle school. And I asked one young man, are you going to be in gifted and talented? And he just brightened up. I thought he probably was going to be, and certainly he is. And the kind of talent that is mentioned here is a measurement of money. In fact, in the Greek world, it was the biggest measurement of money that could be found. I did a little math on this matter, and I coupled it with what we read in Matthew 20, where Jesus tells another parable about a group of people who were hired beginning at 6 a.m. all the way to 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and each one of them got one denarius for pay. That was the limited, what we would call, the minimum wage in that day and time. A talent, according to what research we do on what it amounted to, it was 10,000, mark them, denarii. 10,000. And when I did the math, math, you know what that came out to? One talent, by today's standards, seven and a quarter, an hour, minimum wage. 15000 with a few dollars left over, that came out to 37 years and roughly $570,000. That's no small sum, is it? A talent. That's a huge sum. And he gives five to one man. That's over $3 million, of course, way over that. And then he gives two to another, and he gives one to one of these individuals, according to each is each own ability. Now, our Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Now, we're all created equal because we're all created in the image of God. And we know what the Bible says in Galatians about those of us who know Jesus. It says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. So we're all equal in the sight of God, and God wants to use each one of us. However, we're not all created equal as it relates to abilities. And we see this in this parable. One man had five talents because he was the most able of the three. The next man who was more able than the one who got one, he got two talents. And then the one who got one, he had some talents I mean, abilities, and he got that one talent. So we see that that's an important thing. And by the way, the word ability, listen to the word as it appears and sounds in the New Testament. It's the word dunamis. Our English word dynamic, or English word dynamite, is derived from this word. And it's a power is the idea. Each according to his own power. And then he went on his journey. Notice verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded them and gained five more talents. This man was a go-getter. Immediately, he didn't let any moss grow under his feet. He was one who was Johnny on the spot. Immediately, he got busy trading these talents, making more of what had been entrusted to him. And he won, really the word gained means won, five more talents. That's amazing, isn't it? Verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. This man 
went immediately to in the same manner that would be suggestive of this. Verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He didn't do anything with it. We're going to get back to him in a moment. He's going to get a bum rap today from this pastor. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Let me stop here just a moment. Notice he didn't say, Well done, good and flashy slave. He said, Faithful slave. There's a big difference between being a flash in the pan and being someone who perseveres through all kinds of situations. We don't know how long the master was gone. Considerable amount of time. He had entrusted all of that wealth in the hands of these people. And for our purposes today, this is what I believe the concept for people in every situation, in every generation, finds when it comes to talents. A talent is an opportunity. And remember, the opportunity is in the kingdom of heaven. And remember, who is the king of this kingdom? Jesus Christ is the king. So, the opportunity is the opportunity of serving the Lord with what opportunities He provides for us. The reason I chose to read from Ephesians before beginning this teaching this morning, and especially the 15th and following verses, this is what it says. It says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Stop being foolish and understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled. That means controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. God gives us opportunities. And every opportunity that we encounter, we are to be ready to seize that opportunity for the glory of God. To help build up the kingdom of God. Remember, these talents were not talents, amounts of money which belong to these three servants. Or slaves, really, is the word. Those amounts of money were monumental. And They weren't theirs. They were managing that money, their opportunity for their master because they knew when he returned, they would have to give an account. Do you understand? If you know Jesus, you have opportunity that you would not otherwise have. You have been enlisted to be part of a kingdom of priests. That's what the Bible says about us who know Jesus. We're part of a kingdom of priests. And consequently, a priest is a person who puts God in touch with people and people in touch with God. That's our calling. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple. We need to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We have to be wise about how to go about that. And... When the Master comes, He has words of affirmation for 
the one who had five talents and parlayed them in to five more talents. Look at verse 22. The one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. The master sings like a broken record, doesn't he? I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Think about that. We will have some type of impact on the joy of Jesus when He comes back to establish His kingdom in a physical way at the end of time as we know it. At the end of the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about this matter. He says, what is our joy? What is our crown of exaltation? How are we going to present something to Jesus when He comes. There's going to be a presentation service in the case of the two people who multiplied the opportunities God gave to them. There was a moment of presenting something to the Master. It's not true of the man who had one. We'll get to him in just a moment. But there was something to present to him. And what is that joy? That we experience. And what will be the joy of the Lord when we present? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what the joy of the Lord will be? you know what Jesus will experience when He comes again. And when we who have been like the man who got five talents or the man who got two talents, we have something to give to Him. It will be joyful for Him. And it will be joyful for us. Perhaps you've seen a child who has done something and it's done in a very childlike way to serve his parents without being told. Can you get a visual of that in your history with a child? And the child comes so eager to give you something or to present something to you that she or he has done, believing it would be pleasing to you. You've seen that, haven't you? It was joyful for the child, but what about you as the parent or the grandparent? It was joyful for you too. In Jesus' case, when He comes... For an accounting of our lives. We stand before Him. And we have indeed multiplied our opportunities He's given to us. It's going to be double joy. Joy for us and joy for Him. As He invites us to enter His joy. Look at verse 24. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said... Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Well, in the first place, this man represents people who think they know God but really don't know God. God certainly is a God to be feared. We are to give Him utmost respect. And we are to have such respect that we might even tremble in His presence at times. But this man was using his 
idea of God, which was a false idea in this case, to cover up his own laziness and, yes, wickedness. We're going to see that in just a moment. He says in verse 25, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. A man named Joachim Jeremias, one of the greatest New Testament scholars, especially with regard to New Testament history, the historical background of the New Testament in the 20th century. In his book, Jerusalem in the Times of Jesus, he talks about this parable. And he discusses how it was not uncommon for someone who was entrusted with a sum of money that belonged to someone else, and it was entrusted to that individual to keep it safe, it was not unheard of for a person to dig a hole in the ground and bury it and hide it. So this was not without custom. But remember, we're not talking about ordinary people here. We're talking about people who are members of the kingdom of God, or at least supposedly. This last individual probably was one of those who are described as a tear by Jesus in Matthew 13 when he's describing the kingdom of heaven and the elements of the kingdom of heaven. Looks like a wheat stalk, but is not. It's just a wild weed that has been sown by an evil person. And Jesus explains who that evil person would be. It's Satan himself. So, look at what he goes on to say to this man who only had the one and had a wrong impression about Jesus. First, the man says, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. In the book of Jeremiah, the 48th chapter, This is what we hear the Word of God say. Cursed is the one who is slack in his work for the Lord. Now that's strong, isn't it? It's a good warning to me and to you. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light in order that we might declare the excellencies of God in Jesus Christ to the world. What we are, we are ambassadors for Christ. All the different metaphors which are gathered up in the New Testament to describe who we are, they are dignifying beyond our imagination. And they are also leveling in the sense that all of us are such people if we know Jesus. And He has work for us to do. And it's work that, if done properly, the results will last forever. Verse 27, then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Now, you don't get much interest today at the bank, do you? In fact, it's hardly worth messing with what little bit you get. But even if it's just a little bit, it would be better than nothing when it comes to the life which we live in service to our Lord. Look at verse 28. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. 
For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But for the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave, this is ominous, into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is why I said earlier that this man with one talent was a man who was one of those false Christians. He had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. And consequently, he was not a believer. He was a nominal believer. The other two were real believers because their lives bore fruit. They took seriously what God gave them to do. Well, having worked through this passage with you, I want to talk about what's necessary, and you've already figured it out, For the enlarging of the kingdom of God. That's why we're called out of darkness to advance the kingdom of God. From this parable, we learn that we will not enlarge God's kingdom by playing it safe. The one talent guy was the guardian of the status quo. He played it safe. And let me say before I misunderstood, we're not to be risk takers for the sake of taking risks. We're simply to follow the Lord. And Jesus calls us not only out of darkness into marvelous light, He calls us out of our comfort zone over and over and over again. Because it's only in that kind of situation that we are called upon to really trust in Him. As long as we play it safe, we don't have to trust in the Lord. As long as we're self-protective in our approach... We don't need any help from the Lord. Why did he play it safe? Well, one reason is very clear. It's found in verse 25. He says, I was afraid. Fear struck the heart of this man. Sometimes we are so afraid we'll fail, we'll never succeed. Edison, Thomas, Thomas Edison took almost 8,000 attempts before he invented the light bulb. And when he was asked about that, he said, those times were not failures, but they were an education for me. Sounds like Thomas Edison, doesn't it? A coward is one who makes a lot of excuses. This is one definition for cowardice. Makes a lot of excuses. This guy had excuses, didn't he? He said, I knew you were a hard man and so forth and so on. He was trying to excuse himself from not trusting God. He did not trust God. Perhaps you used this excuse before when the Lord was moving you to do something. I'm just too old. Alfred Lord Tennyson, one of the great poets in English literature, at the age of 83, he wrote what probably was his greatest, at least most memorable poem. It was entitled Crossing the Bar. It's about what happens when someone knows Christ goes to be with the Lord in heaven. He was not what we call a religious poet per se, but he was a Christian man. And his poetry was full of images And at the age of 83, now some of you are older than 83 today, so this doesn't let you off the hook, okay? 
Moses was from the age of 80 to 120 as he was leading the children of Israel out of bondage and through the wilderness wanderings. The biggest task that's been given to any human being except Jesus Christ, I believe, was given to Moses at the tender age of 80 and it went for 40 years. That was a long time to put up with those immature, whiny, rebellious Israelites, wasn't it? Of course. And if that's not enough, what about Sarah and Abraham? 100 years old for Abraham, 75 years old for Sarah, and they had their first child together. Well, I bet that was fun in the labor room, don't you? Amazing. Here's another excuse that we often use. You don't know my circumstances. And there's a sense in which that's true. I don't know your circumstances any more than you know mine. And every person is wired a little differently in terms of how they deal with situations. I read in preparation for this message about a man named Mark Speckman. Mark walked on to play football at Azusa Pacific. Now, Azusa Pacific University in Southern California is not a school that's in the Power Five. It's not even in Division One. I don't even know if it's in Division Two. It may be NAIA, and I'm not sure what all that means, but it means it's just barely above high school in terms of the talent level generally. But he went out for football there, and his presence the first day was shocking to his coaches. Here's why. Mark Speckman had no hands, and he was trying to make the football team at Azusa Pacific. He not only made the team, he was the middle linebacker. And his coach said, it always amused us to watch him argue with a referee when he was called for holding. He'd just hold up his hands and say, how could I hold? I don't have any hands. Great story. Whatever division... He played in, in college, he was named All-American. And it was not a sympathy vote. His statistics as a ferocious middle linebacker, able tackler, proved his mettle and his worth in such a situation. you got some hands. Most of us have hands. Some of us are a little crippled in our hands, maybe a little arthritis, maybe not having the strength we once had in our hands. But the good news is that God uses crippled people. In fact, cripples is all he has to work with. The Bible says about the Lord that not many of you were wise, not many of you were influential, not many of you were of noble birth, but God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Weak to shame the strong. So he gets glory. Are you deficient? Welcome to the club. We all are. But when Christ comes and he saves us and he gives us orders, he never asks us to do something that he does not give us the power to do. Never. Perhaps you know the name Thomas Watson. I'm not talking about Sherlock Holmes' sidekick Watson. I'm talking about a man who... When IBM reached its apex, it was the most powerful company in the world. He was the CEO. 
And this is what he says. If you want to double your success rate, double your failure rate. That means don't play it safe, right? You can't play it safe and double your success rate because it includes some failures along the way. Very important. And after one project that he had approved lost $10 million, and this is probably 40 years or more ago, quite a ways back, $10 million is still a lot of money. In that day, it was much more than it is today. He said this, we just invested $10 million, he said. That's the heart of a guy who understands the worth of trying things, not on a whim, but stepping out and trying to accomplish things. Winston Churchill, a name that's familiar to everyone here perhaps, said this about success and failure. He said, success is never final. Isn't that right? It's never final. Failure is seldom fatal. It is courage that counts. The greatest act of courage is the first step either physically or emotionally or intellectually. It's the first step, isn't it? And so this man was afraid. He was afraid of his master. We have to take him in his word here. He had a misunderstanding. And we have the same kind of misunderstanding as it relates to God and the Father and Jesus the Son. They don't want us to be a bunch of loose cannons running around just firing off at will. We need to listen to what... The Lord says. And then when we get word from the Lord, we trust Him, we claim the promise, we wait, we listen, and we act when He tells us to act the way He has called us to act. And He gives us the grace to accomplish whatever He gives us to do. So one of the reasons that we play it safe, just like this man did, is because we're afraid. The Bible says, I was reading this morning, some of you are following the Mount Journal, We're reading this this morning, perhaps, too. In 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's for us. It was for this fictitious character in this parable, too. Here's the second reason we play it safe. Anger. Now, we don't know for sure this man was angry. This requires a little sanctified imagination. But I would suggest to you, he was angry at his master for having been given so little. He compared himself with the other two men. This man got five talents. This man got two talents. And I only got a measly $570,000. That's all I got. It's a losing game if we compare ourselves with other people. It's wrong for us to compare ourselves with other people. We just do what the Lord wants us to do. This man's perspective was, if I can't have what I want, I won't improve on my master's position. He thought of the talent as his own Whereas the other two men saw the talent, or talents I might say, belonging to other people. This man was angry because his master had given him so little, 
Therefore, he accused God and excused himself. Are you accusing God of the little that he has given to you in terms of opportunity rather than investing it? Maybe you are. If you are, just like we are to repent of fear, we're to repent of anger too if we're going to be useful to the Master. Self-pity is a third reason I see here. And here again, I'm reading between the lines a bit. But he may have risen, the one talent guy may have reasoned this way. My talent is so small and I, I can do so little with it. What contribution can I make? Now, let's stop here just a moment. Who gives us opportunity? God. Almighty God. The maker of heaven and earth. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. This God who made this magnificent world. And then if we study the chemistry and the DNA and the makeup of our own bodies, it's overwhelming. It's just amazing how the human body itself works. It's a masterpiece. Our human Bodies are those kinds of marvels of science, as we would call them, and they're the work of the hand of God. Don't you think if he did that, he would be capable of using you or me? For sure. This man pitied himself. He was mistaken, though, about God's provision or lack thereof for his accomplishment of something significant. He underestimated his opportunity. We've already seen the value of the talent. Because we cannot be spectacular, sometimes we refuse to be significant. There's only room for one person in the universe to be spectacular, quite frankly. And it's God. And he wants us to live in such a way to glorify him. So, here we see that we really can't enlarge the kingdom of God, advance it, if we're about playing it safe. And the flip side, I've already alluded to that, we will enlarge God's kingdom by taking risks. I read somewhere years ago that there are three phases that institutions go through. It's inevitable. The first is the risk-taking stage. The second is the caretaking stage, and the last is the undertaking stage. We are called to be in risk mode, and really that's not the good word. It's the faith mode, trusting the Lord and following the Lord as He leads us. Are you getting a picture of what your life could be in Christ if it's not what is represented by the five-talent man and the two-talent man. Your life can be a life that matters as long as you're drawing breath. If you know Jesus Christ, your life can matter forever. There are a lot of people who just sort of ooh and awe over the five-talent man. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, I have greatest admiration for the two-talent man. Because, as we read the parable, we saw the man who had five talents and doubled them. 
He got the talent of the one talent fellow who buried his. He got one more. He had 11. But the man who had done the same kind of work, he only got what he had developed. Now please understand. This man who got two talents on top of the two that had been given to him, he was a man, he didn't, there's no evidence that he whined or complained about what he did not get. He was just happy to be on the team and making a contribution. As I watched the NBA playoffs, the last series, I didn't watch anything really until that last series between the Raptors and the Warriors, and I was pulling, I always pull for the underdog if I don't have a favorite team in the hunt. And I was for them. And I saw how many role players. You know, I only knew the name of one player. And I'm a sports nut. I only knew the name of one player, Kawhi Leonard. And the reason I knew him is because he used to play on my favorite team, the San Antonio Spurs, and he was a star there. I couldn't have named one other player on that team until I saw them take the floor. I could have named a lot of players on the Warriors team. Draymond Green, Stephon Curry, Clay Thompson, and on and on the list went. I could have named virtually all their players. But the role players made a huge difference. And they were satisfied. They were part of that team. They knew, and those superstars also knew, that were it not for the role players, they would not have won a championship. It's a concerted effort in the body of Christ for us to accomplish the mission which God has given us, that of being ones who, as a team, we move the ball forward in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Well, these two guys, the five-talent and the two-talent man, were not equal in opportunities, nor really equal in potential, comparatively speaking, but they were equal in faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant or slave. They got the same commendation from Jesus Do you hope that would be the case when Jesus comes again? There's never been a moment that's closer than now for His coming again. Every tick of the clock puts us one second closer to the second coming of Christ. The signs of the times are really beginning to connect in a way that they probably have never connected before. And He's coming. And He's coming And we want to be ready for His coming. We want to present to Him people whom He has used us in this world to touch. Even if your work is lower level than a lot of other people in the church, or even in your workplace, out in the community, remembering that we who work in the church, we have sort of a sheltered experience. You are like the commandos of Christ. You go undercover into the world. 
and you serve the Lord in your workplace, whether it's your home or your own business or working for someone else in some profession, you are used by the Lord there too. But there's some people who get more notice. Even in the church, some people get more notice than others. But if we have our perspective correct, we're looking to the Lord, aren't we? Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians, we make it our goal to please Him. Not to please ourselves, not to please our pastors, not to please other people in the church. If we're doing it right, we're doing it for Him and Him only. Correct? That's what we're doing. That's what we're about as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Martin Luther King said If a man's calling is to be a street sweeper, he should sweep sweep streets as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or as Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. We who know Christ are people who have a life that is filled with opportunity. It's one of the, it's the most exhilarating life imaginable. Serving the King of the universe as we serve each other in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Paul Turnier For years, the leading voice among Christian psychiatrists, he was Swiss. And Dr. Turnier said many memorable things. And this one thing which he said has always stuck with me. He said, the greatest tragedy in humanity is the tragedy of a person who is indefinitely planning to live, always waiting for the opportune moment. Alexander the Great, not a tremendous role model, but we know what he accomplished in a short life. He said, I conquered because I never delayed. Sometimes the Lord tells us to wait. And that's hard for some of us, to wait, to restrain our impulse. But he says, wait. When he says, wait, what do we do? We wait. But when he says, go, we go. And we trust Him to use us as we follow Him. A couple wrote a book entitled Cradles of Eminence. Their mission when they were doing their research was to study 412 figures from history who had made a great impact. They wanted to see if they could find any common threads in the lives of these 412 people. What they discovered was there was one common thread that was typical of 392 of the 412. It was common. That was the most common thread. Do you know what it was? It was overcoming difficulty. Pain. Overcoming pain. This world that we walk in is a world that's opposed to the Lord. It's opposed to us if we're associated with the Lord. 
That's why Jesus talks so much about hardship and persecution. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven today. But what we need to understand is that as we follow Christ, we're in a war, and there are casualties in wars. People get wounded. We follow Jesus as good soldiers of Christ Jesus is the way that Paul speaks of that following to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Put on the full armor of God. But we get wounded. And as we deal with this, we need to understand pain is not optional in this walk. But joy is always possible in this walk. We can have joy in the midst of any pain we are enduring at this very moment, be it physical or psychological or financial or any combination of anything you could think of. Joy is ours in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord's near. He's our guardian. He's the one who protects us. And we can trust Him in that. I'd like to finish with a comment and a reading from one section of Scripture and a quotation from another. I'm reading from the J.B. Phillips translation from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. It says, The Christ you have to deal with is not a weak person outside you, but a tremendous power inside you. He was weak enough to be crucified, yes, but he lives now by the power of God. I am weak as he was weak, but I am strong enough to deal with with you, who these people give him a hard time. For I share his life, the life of Christ, by the power of God. We share, if we know Jesus, we share his life and we share his power for doing whatever is given us to do. The Christian life is not primarily a life of imitating Christ. It is primarily a life of being inhabited by Christ and trusting Christ to give us the power to do whatever he gives us to do. Lastly, the quotation from the book of Philippians chapter 4, where the scripture says, Paul speaks, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Look, we can't do anything about what's happened so far in our lives, can we? Forget it. I mean, I can get depressed in a hurry if I think about what's happened between now and last last week in my own life. Failed opportunities. But what we know is we can't do anything about it except confess it, repent of it, if it's sin, We've wasted time, wasted opportunity, sinned in some other way in action or attitude or word. Put it behind you and keep your eyes centered on the goal. And the goal is to know Christ and to make Him known. We're to advance the kingdom of God.
Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this morning, the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for the joy of being privy to what you think about us and what plan you have for us. We're just asking you now, Lord, to fill us with your spirit. Control us, I set for me. I pray that for everyone in the room so that we can make a difference for your glory. We believe you will hear us because we're asking in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.